1: It is great, I can tell you, to be able to make a living as a historian. What could be better? Well, can you imagine what it would be like to be a historian who spends his working days on a Civil War battlefield? Or perhaps one who works at the most politically charged location in the history of American slavery and abolition? Or you could work at the most beautiful place, the place Thomas Jefferson called one of the most stupendous scenes in nature. Or maybe all of the above. We'll talk tonight with the luckiest man in America. He is Dennis E. Fry, Chief Historian at Harper's Ferry National Historical Park. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio voiceamerica.com
2: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app. If you have an iPhone, Android or BlackBerry, the Voice America interactive radio player powered by Aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere live and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android or BlackBerry powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World or Android Market.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building, the Lawrence F. Brewster Building, on the campus of East Carolina University. In Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the state of North Carolina, City of Greenville, University of East Carolina University, Department of History, Brewster Building, or anybody else, just myself and our guest will not represent the Park Service or anyone else either. We'll all just talk for ourselves, as we always do, on Civil War Talk Radio. It is a pleasant evening in April 2017 cloudy. Maybe we'll have a storm tonight, but the sun is still out. The show always this time of year begins in sunlight and finishes in complete darkness. It's interesting to look out the window as we go through the hour. It is uh, 2017, which is, you know, on the Chinese calendar is the year of 1,000 likes. All worthy websites or uh, Facebook pages rather should get 1,000 likes from their fans. And we are up to 862 at impediments of war so be sure you get your friends and relations to go to impediments of war on facebook find out who's going to be on the show next and don't forget to like the page while you're there if you're listening live or not live i suppose but through the miracle of Terrestrial radio on 91.7 FM SBB radio in Claxton, Tennessee, or its neighboring communities of East Oak Ridge, South Clinton, and North Powell. Greetings to you. You can also turn down the radio, run over to the computer, fire that up, and like us on Facebook. Well, normally I blather on about sports at this point for a few minutes. Some listeners. Enjoy hearing about ECU or the Greenville Stars. Some wish I would get on with the actual show. Uh, tonight, uh, not much to say. The uh, uh, my my soccer team in the local recreation league lost a game three to two. Should have been a tie, but uh, we, we we gave up a goal on a, a very bizarre and foolish play, which I was not involved. Unfortunately. But I have to say I played like a 60-year-old man last Sunday. It was terrible. Instead of the youthful 58-year-old that I am, uh, I was really no help to my team. I pulled muscles I didn't know I had in my right thigh and don't know if I can go again in two weeks. Uh, But hopefully things will get better there. On the Civil War front, uh, a news item worth sharing that came across the email this past week is the announcement of a Civil War Roundtable National Congress. Many of you, I know, listen, or who are listeners, belong to your local Civil War Roundtable or have attended one at some point. And one thing that always strikes me when I go to speak to them is that they're all alike in many ways, all different, unique, each in their own way. But they don't seem to, uh, but they each exist in their own world. Uh, here in North Carolina, there's 13, maybe 16, I'm not sure how many there are, and they didn't, none of them coordinate with any of the others. Last summer, the Brunswick Civil War Roundtable, the uh, the enormous one, uh, the most successful one probably in the country, uh, organized a statewide meeting, brought all the leaders from all the groups together, and it was so successful they're going to do that again. Uh, This summer in August, and that in turn has led to the idea of a national one. So if you're interested, uh, it will be in Centerville, Virginia, just outside the Bull Run battlefield, hosted by the Bull Run Virginia Civil War Roundtable, the Brunswick, North Carolina group, uh, Puget Sound, Washington Civil War Roundtable and Scottsdale, Arizona, CWRT. So from all around the country. To uh, get connected to that, go to www.pscwrt. P stands for something, P.S., probably Puget Sound uh, Civil War Roundtable. That's uh, uh, one of the sponsors. So, uh, pscwrt.org slash congress. Find out about it. will be on September 17th and help bring these organizations together from around the country. Seems like a good idea. There should be perhaps more of that. Another way to meet people from around the country and indeed around the world, uh, come join us on this hallowed ground tour. Not too late to sign up, May 20th to 28th. Go to www. StephenAmbroseTours.com if you don't know how to spell Stephen Ambrose you have not been reading enough history so uh, you can look that up uh, StephenAmbroseTours.com all one word and join us as we go to sites across Virginia and Maryland and uh, I guess actually today West Virginia because we'll be going to Harper's Ferry which we'll talk about in just a few minutes also up into Pennsylvania it's, it's a really entertaining and enlightening and inspiring week. I I hope uh, more of you can come along, uh, check it out and uh, make that your summer mini vacation. You can, as always, follow what's happening on the show at Impediments of War, either the Facebook page or the website impedimentsofwar.org. You can also there find the bookstore button Click on that. It'll take you to an Amazon page with books by many of our recent authors. Buy them there, and that helps out the show. You can go go to the PayPal button, click on that, and send money directly to me. It's no different than if you just handed me money right out of your wallet. There's no formal receipt. I will send a thank you, but you can't deduct it on your taxes because it's just uh, a gift out of the goodness of your heart. I don't always need to buy books with it. Publishers will sometimes send me review copies, and then sometimes, as happened uh, earlier this week, they'll send a review copy and the East Carolina University Mail Service will swallow it whole. And after a week or two of waiting for the book, I'll figure it's somewhere, maybe on the medical campus, going in somebody else's office, and I will end up actually buying the book with the money you've sent me, so thank you for that. Books coming up in the weeks ahead, shows ahead. Uh, Next week, on the 19th, Judith Giesberg rejoins us with her new book, Sex and the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of American Morality. That book has been getting some attention. So has the following week's book, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War, by Jonathan W. White. He's also a returning friend of the show. And then, uh, as we enter the month of May, it be almost time for graduation here, uh, Gary Cross, who is a licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg, among other Civil War gigs, will be with us. The following week, Drew Gruber, Executive Director for the Civil War Trails Incorporated. And then on the 17th, Michael McCarthy, author of Confederate Waterloo. It's about the Battle of Five Forks. We'll take a break and we'll finish up, uh, we'll take a break on the 24th of May when I'm on the road with the This Hallowed Ground Tour. In the last few shows of the academic year, Dave Powell comes back with the third of his Chickamauga trilogy on May 31st. Something different, on June 7th, Kevin McCarthy, jazz musician, has composed a set of pieces collectively called The Better Angels of Our Nature, based on Civil War music. Uh, Expand our horizons and listen to some of that and talk to him about it. On June 14th, uh, wrapping up the season, Timothy Smith, uh, he also has been on before, uh, at one time, a ranger at Shiloh, and now author of his most recent book, Grant Invades Tennessee. So lots of interesting things coming up. Tonight, we talk with a Park Service member, the chief historian at the Harpers Ferry National Historic Site, Dennis E. Fry, National Historic Park, not site, let's be technically correct. It's Dennis E. Fry. Dennis, are you there? Yes, sir, Jerry, I am. Welcome to the show.
3: I am really delighted to be with you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Well, it it was inspired by a number of listener requests. Uh, Listeners, your requests are always welcome. Uh, The the man during the breaks tells you the email address, which some of you tell me you can now recite uh, by heart. Let me know who you want to hear, uh, but a lot of people asked uh, uh, Dennis for you, so I'm delighted to have you here. Well, I'm very honored and I'm very appreciative of the kind folks who recommended
3: me for your show. Thanks to them.
1: So, how do you get to be Chief Historian at uh, a wonderful place like Harpers Ferry?
3: Well, it helps to be born here. Uh, I'm actually a (laughs) native of the area. Um, I grew up um, uh, not far from Harpers Ferry. In fact, the tallest mountain that overlooks Harpers Ferry, right north of the Potomac River, is called Maryland Heights. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's the mountain I grew up on. And as a little boy, I can remember uh, hiking with my father on the, uh, the crest of Maryland Heights, which is a Civil War battlefield, in fact. Uh, The very first fighting that occurred in the state of Maryland that was between Union and Confederate infantry was on Maryland Heights on September the 13th of 1862, prelude to Antietam. And uh, we walked the battlefield. We walked down to the fortifications that were later built on Maryland Heights. I used to play in the forts as a little boy. We didn't have to build our forts. We had real Civil War forts to play in. (laughs) Wow. And so that, that, uh, it really helps to be a native. I knew when I was uh, in the sixth grade, uh, 12 years old, that I wanted to be a park ranger, and I wanted to be a historian. And so I literally have spent most of my life um, uh, striving to uh, to be a good historian, and uh, I can't think of a better place for a historian to work than Harpers Ferry National Historical Park.
1: Well, it is a, a spectacular location in terms of, of natural beauty as well as historical significance. Uh before asking you about that, though, I, something I saw on the uh, news today, I guess it happened in the last few days, uh, at a different historical site at, at Gettysburg, there was a story about the Park Service there doing a controlled burn on Little Round Top to remove the, uh, the underbrush and bring it closer to the 1863 appearance. Yep, Did you yep. see that? And and do you guys ever do anything like that at Harper's Ferry? it's a it's a pretty
3: standard practice now in many of the national parks. It's a way for us to try to uh, either
1: initiate uh, a restoration. So you were saying that that this is something that the Park service does to to recreate the pretty the look routine. Of pretty
3: routine. yeah, uh, Antietam does it, Gettysburg does it. It's not that unusual to see it at national parks. In our park, we actually don't do it at Harpers Ferry. Uh, because we really don't have any area uh, that would be suitable for um, for the burners. Plus, we're in a fairly congested area with, with the villages of Harpers Ferry and Bolivar and the national parks surrounding them. But in most battlefields,
1: it's quite suitable. Now, Harpers Ferry is unique in that you have, or at least unusual, I, I suppose, you have a, a town right there. Uh, yeah, right and beside, People live there. Uh, yep. pe- they live there. They work there. That's not typical, is it? Well, uh, of course, when we think of national parks,
3: we think of places like Yellowstone and Yosemite and the Grand Canyon. And, uh, and although there are villages associated with each one of those places, um, typically you think of a national park as being very remote. But Harpers Ferry, uh, we literally surround two towns. Uh, there's the village of Harpers Ferry and the village of Bolivar. Uh, all totaled around uh, thirty five hundred people living in those two communities, and uh, boy, they're integral to the national park as we are to them.
1: It, it's uh, it, it's a place that I, I enjoy visiting every year with this hallowed ground uh, tour. That until you go there, it's hard to really conceive of it. You have this little historical historic village, but it's it's not a museum. It's filled with. People living and working there, but all in historic homes, uh, at the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac rivers. It, it is just a, a, a really a fascinating place to visit. No, um, I think an appropriate word is magical. I mean, uh, many, I
3: love the fact that you lead the Hallow Ground tour because certainly the battlefields are hallowed ground. But, you know, when you're at the wilderness or Spotsylvania, um, it's hard to call it magical. Uh, the landscape uh, is, is so telling, but in a way that uh, it, it's it's significant because of the horrors of war. Harper's Ferry has the horrors of war juxtaposed over one of the most stupendous landscapes in the world. And in fact, it's almost impossible to conceive of war at such a beautiful place. It just does mind tricks to the brain. and It, so, it really um, does. Yeah, We're going to
1: take yeah, a short so break. There, We're, We'll take a short break. We'll come right back, talk more with our guests, Dennis E. Fry, Chief Historian at Harper's Ferry. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
4: The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk. Gets those synapses in your brain
0: firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ecu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ecu. edu. Now back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dennis E. Fry, Chief Historian at Harper's Ferry. We were talking at the end of our first section about what a, a magical place Harper's Ferry is, in spite of being the scene of bloodshed during and before the Civil War. It is also the site of great natural beauty, uh, wonderful, charming, historic homes. And every time I've been there, it's filled with groups of school children, people who are rafting on the rivers, or lying on the, the banks of the River Sunning. There are hikers and bikers. It's a stop on the Appalachian Trail. The people just going through on a brief stop off between Georgia and Maine. It is it is really a fascinating place. Uh, but, Dennis, let me ask you about one of the hard, harder questions about Harper's Ferry. Besides being, of course, the scene where Stonewall Jackson captured uh, some 14,000 Union soldiers in 1862. It's also the site of John Brown's uh, raid in 1859, and you have uh, interpretive sites for that. That is still a, a, a fraught event. It's still an event that people see as an example of undaunted heroism against slavery or of the dangers of radical extremism leading to war. Well, there's no how, question. Do you, how do you interpret that?
3: Well, there's no question that um, there's two words that are synonymous with Harper's Ferry, and those are John Brown. Uh, yes. Most of the visitors that come to our national park know something about John Brown. Now, it's interesting. What they know is usually based upon the region they grew up in, where they, mm. where they lived, uh, where they learned. Uh, and that's where their impressions are formed of John Brown. So as an example, uh, those who live in the South, like North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, may have a very, very different impression of John Brown than those who live in Massachusetts, Vermont, uh, or New York State. And um, it's interesting. John Brown was sectional in 1859, and how people view him today is still very sectional. Uh, I think it really helps reflect um, how history is perceived uh, depending on where you live in the country, how history is taught depending on what region you grew up in. Um, And so one of the wonderful things about John Brown is everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion on Brown. (laughs) And they're not afraid to share it. And that makes my job as a park ranger actually a, a wondrous experience because we love hearing people's opinions. We don't try to say to them, this is what you should think. We say to them, what do you think
1: but at the same time as a historian you know they bring a regional view but as the national park service you represent a national view and as a historian you represent the idea that there may not be any one single truth about anything but there are some things that are less true than others so if somebody comes to you and says john brown was the very devil or john brown was the the most heroic man in american history how, how do you how do you placate both views? we don't we don't attempt to, and we don't attempt to be
3: an arbiter. Um, we don't attempt uh, to uh, be a judge. Um, we actually encourage people to express those views, and we accept them as their personal opinion. Uh, nobody can be wrong in opinion. A lot of people can be wrong in fact. And um, the point about John Brown is that there's much more opinion actually than fact. I mean, the fact is pretty simple. He assaulted Harpers Ferry. He intended to uh, stage a raid on the United States Army and Arsenal to seize weapons, to come into the South, and then to help uh, people uh, move uh, uh, through uh, his own type of underground railroad, basically armed escort from the southern states into the northern states. That was Brown's plan. Didn't work. Uh, He never got out of Harpers Ferry. But all the impressions that people have formed of Brown, all the opinions they have, really makes for fascinating discussion. So we encourage the discussion, and we don't <laughs> try to temper it, and we don't try to uh, be a judge of that discussion. And that way, the Park Service Ranger is always neutral. It's, uh, I tell all of my rangers, if I ever hear a ranger express their personal opinion on John Brown, that's not what they're paid to do. And I will absolutely make sure they never are a ranger in
1: my national park again. Well, let me just—I mean, John Brown is a unique case in that sense. Suppose we're let's let's go back to Gettysburg, and someone expresses the opinion uh, that that Lee could have won the battle by going around the right flank, the way Longstreet and the the book and movie want him to do. Mm-hmm. Can a ranger express an opinion on something that's that's not politically volatile? It's more technical. Uh, well, uh, if
3: I were a ranger at Gettysburg, and I certainly have led tours and, and done lectures on Gettysburg over the years, mm-hmm. um, I, You know, and I certainly have gotten that question many times, it's not a difficult question to deal with. Um, it's, it is the way the historian should present that. It's an option. It is an mm-hmm. option for General Lee. General Lee decided against that option, but before he made his decision, it was an option that he could consider, and an option that he decided to decline. And so I think if we present history not as definitive, and we don't, and we present history as not as it already has happened, but sometimes if we look at history as what were the options available to the leader? What choices hmm. did the leader have? Rather than looking at the final event, look at the event before it occurred, and it helps put things in a much better perspective, and it actually makes that leader much
1: more human. That is true, and, and I want to talk about that, especially in the context of your book, September, Suspense, Lincoln's Union and Peril. Uh, and, and I want to get to that uh, uh, not too far from now, but I want to stick with Harper's Ferry for a bit just because it's such a, a, a great place. The uh, On this question of interpretation, especially for something tough like John Brown, it, at some point there's, um, I think it's called ocrant's Paradox or ocrant's Theory or something to that effect. Uh, the idea that if sometimes being balanced or neutral is actually not the right approach, if, if you're in geography and one person says the earth is round and another says, no, I think the earth is flat, a geographer shouldn't say, well, you know, you both have opinions on that. One is actually right and one's actually wrong. Um, and I think that well, applies to science. I think that
3: fact is much easier to apply to science. Two plus mm-hmm. two always equals four. Two people with two different opinions will never equal one fact.
1: <laughs> well, l- let me give the, 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 the case that always falls down to when we start invoking uh, the World War II. Somebody tries to deny the Holocaust happened. Um, at, at some point, doesn't the historian have to say, well, no, you really can't have that opinion, or you can have it, but it's just not right.
3: Yeah, I mean, there certainly are moral issues, and, uh, and the Holocaust example is a good one. And certainly with John Brown, there are ethical and moral issues. And this, of course, is what helps sustain the debate on John Brown today. John Brown continues to live, even though he's been dead for over 155 years. John Brown lives very strongly in the American consciousness. He is part of the American soul. And um, and, and he represents um, the struggle in America, uh, the evolution in America, um and and the the growth of america um and so we struggle with that and i think certainly um you know america still certainly struggles with race and race issues and john brown certainly is part of uh, of that very complex matter in american history and so we just in our national park our rangers accept the fact that john brown though a historic figure is very much alive In the minds and in the souls of the visitors that come to our national park. And so, again, uh, Jerry, uh, we do maintain a neutral stance. We feel it is not (laughs) our job and not our place to tell anyone what to think of John Brown, but to uh, have them share their expressions. And um, obviously, if somebody says something that's not correct, I mean, this will be an example. John Brown came to Harper's Ferry in 1865. Well, no, he didn't. He came in 1859. (laughs) So we're going to correct an obvious mistake like that, but if someone is expressing a an opinion or a judgment, um, you know there is no correct opinion or correct judgment.
1: That that's and put in putting that context, I see very much where you're coming from. That makes a lot of sense. What does a visitor see related to John Brown today at Harper's Ferry?
3: Well, we we have the John Brown Fort, and that's a that's the most famous building in Harpers Ferry. It's uh, actually a fire engine house that was part of the United States Armory complex, and um, and hundreds of thousands of men, Union and Confederate, marched right by the John Brown Fort during the Civil War years, and so that building was an iconic building even in 1859, and it still remains such today. It's the most visited building in our park. It's a building where people come to and reflect, um, thinking of it almost as a, uh, a place where American history changed. They know when they stand inside or beside that building that what happened there changed us. It changed the trajectory of America. And there is the living embodiment of that in that brick and stone that you see in that building.
1: We This past week here at ECU, we've been talking about histories of campuses and we have a visiting professor, Anne Wisnant, who wrote, uh, co-wrote a study on the National Park Service a few years ago about uh, the Park Service's own history. And she makes the argument that universities and parks, historic parks are good at presenting the history of what happened there, but they're not as good about presenting the history of themselves as institutions. Uh, I, I learned by going to Harper's Ferry about the, the building you've described. Uh, it's not in the original place. It has a history of its own. It, it, it's been places since 1859. It has. In
3: fact, <laughs> it's one of the most <laughs> mobile structures in American history. The, the building has moved four times. Four times. Uh, first time it went to Chicago for the, the Great Columbia Exposition of 1892-93, uh, so did other famous buildings. Libby Prison ended up out in Chicago at that time, and uh, stayed out there for about five years. Then it returned to Harper's Ferry, but it couldn't come back to, to its home place. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had purchased the old armory grounds, which were now ruins, and it actually uh, built a 16-foot a, a uh, earthen embankment over the old armory. Uh, and so the fort foundation was gone. And so when it returned, it was placed on a farm about two miles outside of Harpers Ferry. And um, then, interesting enough, um, it was moved to what was called the Storr College campus. And uh, Store College was a uh, very significant African-American school in Harpers Ferry that uh, commenced in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. In fact, it was one of the very first uh, education institutions in the Old South uh, that was uh, designed to uh, educate former slaves. So it went to the Storke College campus in 1910, and finally in 1968, the Park Service literally picked the building up via a crane, put it on the back of a large flatbed tractor-trailer, and transported it down to its current location. It's within now about 100 feet of its original home site, and uh, someday, someday, I'm hopeful that the National Park Service will actually return it so, to its rightful place.
1: Well, you mentioned the armory. It's yet another fascinating aspect of Harper's Ferry is its role in the Industrial Revolution. And the uh, the armory is one of the early factories in America. I, I was just, at, I, I loved learning about the, the water-powered mill, where, if I remember this correctly, the water went underground, underneath the mill, and turned it from below. Is that correct?
3: Yes. Yeah, we had a very sophisticated water power system in Harpers. We need to remember that the number one source of energy in the first half of the 19th century was not coal, was not steam, certainly there was no electricity. Water power. Water (laughs) power was the principal source of uh, generating uh, energy. Um, in the uh, early part of the 19th century. And Harpers Ferry, of course, has two rivers that come together. So we had ample water power there. That was the main reason George Washington selected Harpers Ferry for a United States Army was the power of the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers. And and so you're right. um, This power was uh, generated via uh, a series of underground uh, tunnels and canals. Uh, we had uh, water wheels and turbines. Eventually, by the 1840s, that were there, and they they ran a massive uh, weapons manufacturing
1: complex. It, it is just again a fascinating place to visit. Visitors, when you go there, you you don't drive through the town typically, but uh, park uh, outside the 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 lower town, the the old part of Harpers Ferry, and and take a, a park service bus. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a mile down to the, from the park parking lot. Oh, it's uh, actually about two miles. But boy,
3: you've got it right, Jerry. Uh, I would not encourage anyone to try to drive into that old town and try to park no. down there. It's almost impossible. Uh, the town was not meant for vehicles; never was. It's very congested down there. What I mean by congested is trapped between these two rivers in a mm-hmm. very very small peninsula. Uh, are the are the rivers the shores? Um, streets and buildings. It's very, very tight. It's almost still suffocating in a, in a kind of a strange way. Um, but uh, you start trying to put cars down there and it becomes, uh, well, it just becomes impossible. And so, um, uh, yeah, we take care of that by shuttling you in and out of town. We have a regular shuttle system that operates and it will bring you in and uh, into town in comfort so that you can have an enjoyable day and not spend hours trying to find a place to park.
1: It's absolutely the way to do it. Uh, The bus has a recording that tells you what you're seeing on the way into town and out. uh, And it's a beautiful drive, and it's just nice to relax and look at things. And uh, Definitely the way way to do that. One site you don't want to miss, uh, we're turning this into a commercial for Harper's Ferry, but well-deserved, is the bookstore. uh, Eastern National, the, the Park Service Auxiliary, runs bookstores at many sites. Yours is particularly good for Civil War materials, i found. Well, I think one reason for that is that
3: we actually are not Eastern National. We are uh, what's called ah. an, independent, an independent cooperating association. Okay. Uh, it is actually a uh, non-profit organization on its own that uh, was established to support our national park. Very few national parks have independent uh, uh, associations, Eastern covers most of them, but because we're right. independent... Um, we have a lot of say, the National Park and, and, and the bookstore staff work very closely together to determine what we uh, offer there. And we have an incredible Civil War collection available for uh, people that come into the store. One of the things we do, and for you authors out there, I'm sure this is going to make you cringe, but you know a lot of books that publishers produce often don't sell out. And if they don't sell out, then uh, unfortunately the publishers do what they call, they remainder the books. And when they remainder the books, they go on a fire sale. The publisher puts the books on a fire sale. And literally the books can be bought pennies on the dollar for, compared to what they were first published for. And so our association staff is constantly, constantly looking for top quality remainder books. And I'm talking about hardbacks that cost 35 yep. 40 45 50 bucks. And when we remainder them um, and we buy them, we can resell them original editions in our bookstore for $10, $12, $15. And so uh, we really have a phenomenal uh, series of books available on the American Civil War and other things like John Brown, The Industrial Revolution, The Railroad Transportation Story of Harper's Ferry, Mm -hmm. African-American History. We've got it all in that bookstore.
1: That is absolutely right. That's the first place I go when I get off the bus. I say, okay, I've Good seen the John you. Brown house a couple of times. I'm going to the well, bookstore to see what that they got this Every dollar that
3: you spend in that bookstore <laughs> ultimately becomes a dollar in support of the national park.
1: Exactly. So I lighten my wallet there every year substantially with a good conscience because I know I'm helping. And listeners, you want to go there and do the same. We're going to take another short break, come back. We'll talk with Dennis E. Fry about his book, September Suspense Lincoln's Union in Peril. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dennis E. Fry, Chief Historian at the Harper's Ferry National Historic Park, uh, Historical Park, let's get that right. The, uh, the the we, we talked about Harpers Ferry. A place that you absolutely want to visit if you're anywhere within remote driving distance. It is uh, beautiful, important, historical. Uh, the events of 1859 and 1862 are interpreted, but also the Industrial Revolution, the uh, post-war economy, the floods that eventually changed the place. It's it's really an interesting place. And in terms of what happened there in 1862, Dennis, you've written this book, September Suspense, about September 1862, which takes a, a, a different approach than many historical uh, than many historians do. In that you rely almost entirely, not just on primary sources, as, as any good historian would do, but on contemporaneous primary sources, on ones written at the moment, uh, newspapers and letters and diaries. Why did you choose to limit yourself to just what was written right at the moment?
3: Jerry, I believe that history is human drama. And actually, I think most historians often filter the drama out of the history as it's happening. And so the closest that you can come to the actual drama itself is to use the words at that moment, at that time. Try to capture what they were feeling as it was happening. They don't know what's going to happen on the morrow. We didn't know on September the 10th, 2001, what was about to happen on September the 11th. And so if you can capture what it was like for them in their own words and let them tell their own stories as it's happening, it's extremely powerful. It's much more powerful than any historian's words. And so I felt that was really missing for September 1862. I think that is such a critical month during the American Civil War, some historians claim and uh, certainly I'm prejudiced in this regard, that it is the the most important month of the American Civil War. And so um, I wanted the people who were living it, experiencing it, both north and south of the Mason-Dixon line, to be able to share their feelings, their emotions, their thoughts, as that drama was occurring. That's what September Suspense is all about.
1: Well, it, it does that again by quoting the, the words written at the time. and it does I, I think it accomplishes something important there in terms of recreating that sense of historical contingency. I, I mean anyone listening to the show who picks up the book knows Battle of Antietam occurred in September of 1862 and uh, and we all know who wins the battle. So it's very hard for us today to approach a book, like this, with with any of that sense of suspense, because because you know we know the ending, and it seems to me what you've tried to do is recreate that sense of, of not knowing what's going to come next, of exactly
3: that's 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 how I like to approach history, you know even when I'm leading battlefield tours for people that have been studying the Civil War for thirty or forty years, everybody knows the outcome. We already <laughs> this is one of the great disadvantages of history. We know the end of the story. I mean, imagine trying to watch a football game or any kind of other sporting event where you already know the end of the game in the ninth inning before it even starts. Or you you know at the end of the fourth quarter the score before the game starts. How boring would that be? We wouldn't sit and watch that game, typically, if we know the outcome from the outset. And so what I try to do with September Suspense is say, suspend from your mind what you know. They don't know what's coming on the morrow. And if you can put yourself in that frame of mind, their frame of mind, that they didn't know what the outcome would be, didn't know what the result or the consequence would be, then wow, you really get drawn into the drama and suspense of their moment. Well, let
1: me give a counter-argument on that. Um, I'm a University of Michigan graduate, and if I'm Cruising the Big Ten network, and they're showing a replay of Michigan Ohio State from 1969. I know the final score. I know who's going to win. I will watch every minute of that game with relish, once again for the 40th time. Uh, even though but I know how lost, it's going to end. But if you're but if you're oh, I, I turn the loss, channel. I turn the channel. Then, then you and probably a minute. The channel. <laughs> exactly. So, but what to draw to the Civil War argument? The idea is the historian. Uh, using the benefit of hindsight uh, brings a perspective and analytical uh, 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 depth that the people at the time lack because they don't know what's happening. So, I, I guess I'm saying it's a trade off. You can have the, the drama and contingency that you present, you can have the, the analytical hindsight that typical historians present. Is there any way to avoid that trade off, do you suppose? I don't know the answer. I don't know that it needs to be a trade-off. I think it needs to be a balance. Mm-hmm.
3: And um, in fact, as I'm reading uh, historical uh, passages from the time, right at the moment as they're happening, I, of course, know the outcome, and it allows me to do analysis because there's many things that are just outrageous that, uh, that aren't true. There's no way they're true. Um, they're, there's incredible hyperbole. It's not mm-hmm. unlike today. It's not unlike on September the 11th, 2001. We didn't know what was going on. We were lost in the chaos and the confusion and the fear. And so when, when people think about that moment in 2001, um, so much of that future historians were just simply dismissed because we know now what was happening. And so for me, I was able to use the analytical tool. So much of what I was reading as it was happening just was so far-fetched and so far flung that I just simply dismissed it because I didn't want to include that in my narrative. On the other hand, those things that I thought were poignant um, and that were very insightful and where people were really getting clues as to what was happening, that's when I made the decision to include that in my narrative.
1: In the example of, of September 11, 2001, you tell a fascinating story in the introduction to your book, uh, uh, I've read it. Tell the listeners where you were when that happened. Well, for Civil War folks, you'll
3: certainly be interested in this. We were filming Gods and Generals, uh, the prelude to uh, Gettysburg. I I was working for uh, uh, Ron Maxwell, uh, director and producer of Gods and Generals, as his associate producer. And uh, I was responsible for recruiting all the reenactors and managing the reenactors. I did a lot of site work for Ron and certainly served as a consulting historian. And um, so we were actually filming uh, that day. Um, Antietam we were filming Antietam Uh, we were filming the bloody cornfield and um, when I learned of what had happened I remember one of the first thoughts that went through my mind as as I discovered that the World Trade Center had come tumbling down was that my God the bloodiest day in American history has just been surpassed Mm. fortunately fortunately that wasn't Mm -hmm. the case Uh, thankfully it wasn't the case. But uh, wow, to actually be filming uh, Gods and Generals and filming Antietam when that horrible attack occurred, uh, well, it it really brought the meaning of Antietam and the American Civil War
1: to the forefront at that moment. You also point out how it it brought out the importance of of newspapers or, or the communication of news because uh, if I recall correctly, you, you were doing a filming in a remote part of the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, you, you couldn't film obviously on the battlefield at Antietam. The Park Service doesn't typically let movies set up there, but but that meant you were far from cell phone coverage. And
3: oh, and we were not... we were in, we were we were so remote. There were no cell towers anywhere. There was no television anywhere. Um, I mean, we purposely, when Maxwell and I were working on sites, uh, we, we were looking for places that that the reenactors could feel like they were in 1862 or 1863. And so we found one of these places in the Shenandoah Valley, and sure enough, the remoteness made communication nearly impossible. And, uh, in fact, I was the first to discover what had happened. Nobody knew about uh, September 11th. I happened to be in a post office. Sending about five hundred postcards to uh a next group of reenactors that was going to be joining us um and uh was listening to the radio. Uh the the postmistress had the radio on and I literally heard the second assault, the second attack on the tower described on the radio. Um it was my Pearl Harbor moment. And so I went, I immediately left, got in my car. It took me about 15 minutes to get to our filming site. And while I was driving, I had the radio on a course, and I heard the attack on the Pentagon described on the radio. And so I was the first uh, person. We had nearly 600 people on uh, filming that day. I was I was the first person to get on set to let anyone know about what had happened.
1: And, and that hunger for news that everybody must have had replicates in, in a way how in 1862 all you've got is the first telegraph reports coming in, or eventually uh, uh, the first newspapers being published, and and the the public north and south, you know, fighting over these scraps of information. Today we're so surfeited with information that it's. Hard to re- recapture how they must have felt. Uh, it's, when so reading instantaneous. The... it's so instantaneous today,
3: and then, of course, um, it took considerable time not only to get a transmission uh, and to get a newspaper published, and, of course, the only means of mass communication at that time. There was no other. Uh, the only means of mass communication was the newspaper. And so it was not unusual, as news was coming in, to do two or three dailies on a single day because they were trying to update the newspapers as the information was, was arriving from the battlefield.
1: One last thought on September 11th to depress us both. Uh, when I teach Modern U.S. History Survey, we get to 2001, not only do the uh, freshman students that I teach not remember it, uh, we're almost we're within a year or so of having students who were not yet born when that happened. Uh, it, it's that far in the past so quickly, hard to imagine.
3: Well, and the Back same to, thing happens. The same <laughs> thing happens with the Civil War. You know, the collective memory becomes the institutional memory, and so now we represent the collective and institutional memory of that event for these young people that you're
1: now teaching. Exactly, and 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 our, and and again, just as you you say in September suspense, uh, uh, to get a sense of the real spirit of the moment, you need to go back to the the uh, recordings and newspapers of that year. If you talk to you or me, we will tell our stories, and we will tell them with advantages, as Shakespeare says, each time uh, it'll get a little better in the telling. Uh, <laughs> to get the real spirit of the moment, you've got to go back to the original source. Let me ask exactly one last question. What about, I
3: did, exactly yes. what I did with September Suspense. No other uh, author who had written about the Maryland campaign had explored that period in the same way that I did. And I think I had, Jerry, the advantage of living here. Living Mm -hmm. here, feeling, literally my soul is part of, I'm grounded here, Uh, this is my home, it's my backyard. And so to tell the stories that occurred in my backyard from the perspective of the people that were my ancestors who were living here at the time and having that experience. My direct blood, genetic ancestors, um, really was, was thrilling for me to tell that story from their perspective.
1: It it is a fascinating story. I should let listeners make sure they're aware. It's not just the campaign in Maryland. It touches on the other things that are happening. The invasion of uh, Kentucky moving toward Ohio in September 1862. Confederates moving north there, uh, simultaneous with Lee's movement into Maryland. And you talk about what's happening overseas, relations with uh, England. It's a uh, a panoramic look at one month in American history from the view of those who are there, and thus uh, uh, really an interesting uh, piece. Are you working on anything currently? We just have a few seconds left, but I, I want to... I am. I'm working on a book on, that's uh, basically
3: called The Strange Story of Antietam, uh, hmm. Myth, Mystery, and Machination, and uh, I intend to explode uh, many of the misconceptions of that period and I'm very excited uh, to to write this book and hope to have it published in 2018.
1: Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show when that happens. We can talk about it then uh, and find out more. Normally, I I urge listeners at this point to check out the author's book, and I do say that, about September Suspense, Lincoln's Union in Peril by Dennis E. Fry. But even more than that, I say go to visit Harper's Ferry uh, National Historical Park. It is just, Uh, one of the treasures of of the United States and and everyone ought to uh, give themselves the opportunity to see it and uh, perhaps uh, Dennis I hope I get a chance to see you when I'm there uh, in May later this year I hope so and and,
3: and I echo what you said please come to Harper's Ferry and have uh, one of the most memorable visits of
1: your life Uh, listeners it will be that Dennis thank you for being on the show it's been a pleasure sir thank you And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.